Man, what, a, what an opportunity to experience the presence of a God who's alive and with us in this room. You, you know, yeah, praise God. Let's, let's give thanks to God. We, we pray for that often, that if there's anything you would walk away with, it's the, the sense that the Spirit of God was here with the gathered church. That's, that's our constant prayer, and I think you just got to experience. I've been praying this morning that, Lord, it would be tangible, palpable that your presence is here. And I, I don't know about you, but brother, sister, God's presence all over this place. And, and I, I, heard, I heard a few of you going like, oh, let's just keep on worshiping, which there's a side room going, maybe we should just keep on worshiping because it's so good. But then the Spirit, as I'm down front praying, I, I feel I'm saying, like, it's great, worship me, but then sit under my word. Let, let my word transform you. And so it's time for us to sit under the word of God and let it speak to us and transform us. We're going to be in Exodus 20 again. You might as well go ahead and open your Bible to the book of Exodus chapter 20. Because today we're going to talk about this, this switch, this transition in the Ten Commandments as we're going through it. But before we get there, I want, to, I want to ask you a question just for you to chew on. You don't have to answer out loud, but just to chew on. How do you know you love someone? We just did a marriage summit yesterday. We were talking about love and unconditional love, and there are many of you who were there for that. And just that, that question, like, how do, you, how do you really know? Is it a feeling that you have? Is it an attraction? Is it a common experience? Like, how do you know that you really love someone? And I think the answer is uh, probably not what you would expect. It, you really know you love someone. The litmus test of your love is when you start loving what they love. That's, like how, that's how you know you love them. Like, you, they're, they're a cowboy fan, and all of a sudden, doesn't matter how, you become a cowboy fan, as painful as that may be, because you love them. You start loving what they love. Like, you, you never thought you would like gardening, but you marry someone who likes gardening, all of a sudden, you realize, I, I love it. I love doing this. You, you're a manly man. You don't like rom-coms until you marry a woman who likes them, and all of a sudden, you go, oh, you know, I kind of enjoy sitting there watching. A, my wife is watching online right now, baby. I love watching rom-coms with you. It's great. You start, you start loving what the other person loves. That's how, you, that's how you know that the love is genuine. And the biggest part, though, is when you start loving the people that they love. That's how you know your love is genuine. You can't say that you love someone until you love who they love or your love is genuine. My, my wife actually taught me this about 14 years ago. I've shared this story a number of years ago, but indulge me. Let me, let me share this again for many of you who haven't heard it yet. It was, it was one of the most potent memories I have of a conversation my wife and I had. We were in Louisville, Kentucky, and we were going over there to be with her family at Christmas time. So it was, it was our family. We had three young kids at the time, and it was my, my wife's sister and her family, my wife's brother and their family, and my in-laws, and we were staying at my in-law's house. And this was the evening time, and so they were having conversation around the dinner table, and I wanted to bless my wife. So I said, hey, I'll go put the kids to bed. You stay down and have conversation. I don't know how you do bedtime, but in our home, there's a whole ritual to it. It involves reading books and songs and prayer. And so I was gone for a pretty good chunk of change time-wise, just up there hanging out with my kiddos. And then I come downstairs when it's all over, and I come down just in time to hear my sister-in-law say the meanest, cruelest thing I've ever heard anybody say to my wife. Now, here's what you got to know. Family's like that. Like, I don't know why we take off the filter with family, but family will say stuff to family that you would never say to somebody else. And that's what happened. And I, I just, I almost, my head almost just blew right off my, my shoulders. I was so angry at this. 
Now, I know m- many of you don't know this uh, because uh, as I get grayer and grayer, I look, I look less and less Latino, but I'm Latino. My last name is Paredes. And, uh, and as, as a, a Latin-blooded human being, let me tell you what it means. It means you don't talk about my mama, you don't talk about my wife, you don't talk about my daughters. That, that's what it means to be uh, Latin-blooded. And so one of the principal cardinal rules was broken in this, and she was talking about my wife, and I heard it, and I was livid. I mean, so angry. And I'm, I'm walking out, and Virginia could hear my pace increase because I'm running down the stairs now because I'm about to tear into my sister-in-law. How dare you talk to my wife that way? She is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You insult her, you insult her. I, mean, I had the whole speech like that in my mind of what I was gonna say. And my wife, she could see the rage in my eyes. And so she invited me into the other room. And by invite, I mean dragged me into the other room, uh, which by the way, she's pretty strong. Like I didn't wanna go, but she just drugged me over to the other room. And she, she got my face and she kind of turned it toward her. And she said, Jason, Jason, listen, I know you heard what my sister said. She didn't mean it. We, we were having a pretty strong conversation, and she just let that one fly. She didn't mean it. It's going to be okay. Just let it go. To which I said, ain't no way I'm going to let that go. No one talks to my wife that way. I want to make sure she knows she never gets to talk to you that way again. And I'm, I'm all after it again. And, and she's like, Jason, Jason, calm down. Let, let me tell you what's going to happen. She's, she's going to say she's sorry. She's going to apologize. She didn't mean it. Everything's going to be fine. But if you go in there, guns are blazing. You're going to cause all kinds of problems. Please, for my sake, just don't say anything. To which I said, I don't care. I'm, I'm going to say something. She needs to know now. The law needs to be laid down now. And she finally said the truth bomb, one of the biggest truth bombs of our marriage to me that, that made me stop. She said, Jason, she's my sister and I love her. And if you're going to love me, you have to love her too. Ah, woman. I mean, what are you going to say to that? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> and so I didn't say anything. And it's been 14 years, and I'm really praying she doesn't watch this sermon right now and, because I've never said anything. In fact, in the other service, my in-laws were in there, and they heard it for the first time, and I had to tell them not to tell anybody because I didn't want her to find out because I, I put it to bed. Okay. If I'm going to love my wife, Virginia, then I don't get to say anything because I'm going to love her. And sure enough, exactly like my wife said, a little bit later, my sister-in-law came back to Virginia and said, I'm so sorry. That was so dumb of me. Can you forgive me? And everything was fine. And, uh, and I, I learned an important lesson. I don't get to say I love her until I love who she loves. Let me tell you why that matters. It is no different with our God. You do not get to say that you love God unless you love who he loves. Let me tell you who he loves. Every human being who bears his image, whether you like him or not, God loves him. And God is saying, if you're going to love me, you best be loving them too. This is the very thing that Jesus told us. Now, I'm not going to go to Matthew 22 right now, but I want to put this parameter on. So Jesus is being tested by the religious leaders, and they say, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And he answers the, the, the common commandment, love the Lord. It's called the Shema in the Old Testament, book of Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There was just a test of orthodoxy, and he he passed. But then Jesus says, wait, 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 wait. There's a second one that I need to tell you. And then he pulls this obscure passage out of Leviticus 19 and says, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. yourself." On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Everybody expected the first one. Nobody expected the second one. But let me tell you what Jesus was doing. He was saying, here's how you love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love your neighbor as yourself. When you love them, that's how you love God. And you look at the cross of Jesus Christ and you see this lived out. 
How did he love the Father? Let me go ahead and tell you a little newsflash in theology. He didn't die on the cross primarily for his love for you. He died on the cross primarily for his love for his Father. Because remember, he's over there going, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to be separated from you. And it was the Father who said, I want you to go anyway. And Jesus said, not my will, your will be done. His will was not to go to the Father. The Father's will was for him to die for people who didn't deserve it. And Jesus loved the Father enough to love us enough to go to the cross. This is what it looks like. And and this is why when you think about what your love looks like, how do you know you love God? Don't ask yourself, do I come down front and lift my hands and get all crazy in my faith? I'm grateful you did that. But that's not the sign of your love for God. The sign of your love for God isn't just that you come to church or that you read the Bible or you, you give money to help others. The biggest sign of your love for God is that you love the people that he loves. In fact, I, I want you to write this down. This is going to be a note-taking kind of sermon, so I would love for you to write this particular truth down. This is a truth that I don't think many of you really grasp or internalize, but I want to make sure you get it right. How we treat others shows how we really feel about God. How we treat others is a litmus test. It is what reveals to you how you really feel about God. And you don't get to say, God, I love you, unless you love the people around you. How you treat others, that's what you're supposed to look at. That's exactly what the second half of the Ten Commandments is all about. So we're back in Exodus chapter 20. We're looking at the Ten Commandments. We spent two weeks on the first four commandments, which were all about love of God. If you remember two weeks ago, we talked about the first three. Have no other gods beside God. Don't bow down to any carved image. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Last week, we looked at how we honor God with our time through the Sabbath. We're going to rest and we're going to focus on you, God. All God-centric. And then he does this little juke. And the last six have nothing to do with God. They have everything to do with people, or at least it appears that way. But what I want to prove to you today is that all the last six, though they're related to other people, they have everything to do with God. And he's saying, you can't say you love me until you love them, because in your loving of them, you love me. So that's how we're going to look at these particular commandments, Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 12. Here's what it says. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So we just read six rapid-fire commands, but I want you to notice the nature of them. They're all about people, murder, adultery, honoring parents, not stealing. All, All this has to do with how we treat other people. But ultimately, what I want you to understand is that every one of the commandments is actually a reflection of God. And what he's saying is, I want you to see in this particular commandment how honoring them actually honors me. So I'm going to start with the the fifth commandment in verse 12, the one about honoring parents. Look look back at that commandment. It says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your father and your mother. Now, I think the reason why God started with this particular commandment as it relates to people is because it's the bedrock of all society. He's he's forming a brand new nation. Remember, a few months ago, they were slaves, and now they're starting into a new nation, and he knows that this interaction between parents and children is the bedrock of all society. As that, that relationship and the family erodes, all of society erodes with it. If you don't know this, look around our society right now. The reason why we are struggling so much in this day and age is because the family is breaking down. 
specifically parent-children relationship. And as that breaks, so does the rest of the fabric of society with it. If ever we needed a commandment today, it is this one that we understand. But I think the problem is we don't actually understand it. We've never stopped to consider what does it actually mean to honor your parents? What does that word entail? Does it mean respect? Because what if they're not good parents? I mean, does it mean do what they say? Because what if they tell me to do something ungodly? What if my parents are of a different religion and they tell me to worship another God? I mean, doesn't that break the first commandment that says I should have no other gods besides the true God? So how do I honor them if that means do what they say? And and, and if it's really about obedience to them, then uh, when does that end? Because the Bible also says that when a person gets married, they're supposed to leave their father and their mother and cleave or be joined together with their spouse. So does it end there? I mean, is that like the commandments until you get married? Or is it only as long as you live in the household, but like you go off to college and then it doesn't apply? Because this, it would be the only commandment that was time-bound. All the other ones are for all of life. That doesn't seem to fit that way. So what does it mean to honor your father and your mother? Well, this is where understanding the original language is so helpful. You've got to remember that the Bible, the book of Exodus, is written in Hebrew. And there are nuances to the words in Hebrew that translate into English. But that, the word there is the Hebrew word kabod. It literally means t- to be heavy. It means to recognize the weight of something. So what it's saying is we are supposed to, to honor our parents, we recognize the weight they have in our lives, their position. Now let me tell you why that matters. That doesn't relate to respect. Respect is something given because of actions taken. You earn respect, you lose respect. But honor the weight of somebody's position, it doesn't matter how they behave. We are born into that, and they have that position over us. It comes down to the idea of authority. Authority is recognizing the weight of somebody in our lives, whether they're doing a good job or a bad job. They have influence upon us. They have weight upon us. This is the same idea that the apostle Peter gets into in 1 Peter chapter 2. When he's talking about the book of Peter, he's talking about the idea of honoring chapter four, when you're looking at Caesar, he says, honor the emperor. It's the same idea. Recognize the authority, the weight of the emperor. He's talking about a wackadoodle named Nero. And he says, honor the emperor. Not that he deserves our respect, but that we should recognize his position, his authority. And so what this commandment is getting at is the fact that we as human beings have to recognize there is authority in our lives that have weight in us. So here's what I want you to write down. I'm going to give you a a different statement for each one of these six. Parents represent the authority of God. So when I dishonor parents, I ultimately dishonor the authority of God. The reason why this commandment is so important, he says, you want to know if you love me or not? Look at how you treat your parents. Because if you disrespect their authority, people that you can see, how in the world will you ever respect my authority, a person you cannot see? And so how we treat our parents is a reflection on how we feel about God. Because remember what I said earlier, how we treat others shows how we really feel about God. So I honor the authority of my parents because in so doing, I honor the authority of my heavenly father. The second one, by the way, is very similar to it. That one about not murdering. Here's the second thing I want you to write down. As image bearers, human life represents the dignity of God. Write that down. Take notes on your phone, do whatever you got to do. As image bears, human life represents the dignity of God. When he says don't murder, he's, he's not just saying don't kill. He's saying protect life. And there's a difference between the two. 
Now, now here's, here's where so many people misunderstand this, this particular commandment. Maybe you've heard this argument before, and maybe you don't even have a defense to this argument, but there are some people who say, look, there are, the, the Bible is incongruent. There are discrepancies in the Bible, because right here it says you shouldn't kill, don't take life, and yet there are other passages, especially in the Old Testament, where God calls his people to kill other nations. And they'll go, see, look, there's a discrepancy in the Bible. You can't have it say, don't kill, and then over here, kill. Therefore, you should disregard the entire Bible. People have made that argument a lot. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've used it. But what I want to tell you, this argument has a very simple solution. It goes back to what I said earlier. You have to remember the Bible is written in Hebrew, not in English. There are eight different words in Hebrew that represent the taking of life. And this is a very specific one. It's razach is the Hebrew word. And it means to needlessly take someone else's life, either by intention or by accident. The focal point of that word is that person did not deserve to die. And so if we needlessly take human life, we're breaking this commandment. It is not the same thing as war. There's a different Hebrew word used for war when God says, I want you to take this life, the, this enemy life, but the reason I want you to take that life is because you're actually protecting the dignity of all these people over here. Probably the best example I've ever seen of this was what a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote back in World War II, specifically against Hitler. He, he was a theologian from, from Germany who, uh, who really, he was a pacifist at first, and then he realized that if somebody were to take the life of Hitler, it would actually save the lives of millions and millions of Jewish people. And he came to the realization that these two were not synonymous. It's not just don't ever take human life, it's protect life. And sometimes in the protection of life, there's the taking of life. But there are different words for different purposes. What God is saying here is protect the dignity of life. But when you understand it this way, all of a sudden it gets a whole lot broader than just not killing somebody. It's protecting the dignity of life, which is why as Christians we fight so hard for the unborn, because we believe they have dignity from the moment they're conceived. This is also, though, why we fight so hard for those who have severe mental struggles or disabilities, while we fight so hard for the dignity of the elderly. We do this because every human life has dignity. And when we do not protect the dignity of human life, we are not protecting the dignity of our God. How we treat others reflects on how we feel about God. And as image bearers, human life represents the dignity of God. You, you keep moving on in the whole thing. The, the very next issue after murder is commit adultery. Here's the next thing I want you to write. As image bearers, marriage represents the covenant of God. As image bearers, our marriage that couples have with one another in the covenant of marriage represents the covenant of God. Now, here's what I want you to pay attention to in this particular commandment. It says, do not commit adultery. It does not say, do not commit sexual immorality. Now, there are other parts of the Bible that say, don't commit sexual immorality. But this one specifically is referring to the covenant of marriage. To commit adultery is to cheat on somebody that you are in a covenant with. The reason why it's focusing on this is because if we cannot maintain a covenant of marriage among human beings, we will not maintain a covenant with an invisible God. And our covenant together represents the power of covenant with our God. And as I treat my spouse with whom I've made a covenant, so I treat God with whom I have a covenant. So God says, I want my society to protect the nature of a covenant, and that way they protect my covenant with them. So do not commit adultery. Do not break the covenant. Next one after that, he says, do not steal. Let me tell you what that is. 
As image bearers, our stewardship represents God's ownership of everything. Our stewardship of the things that God has given us really represents God's ownership of everything. So here's what you got to understand. God doesn't need anything of ours. He already owns everything that we have. Everything that we have, we are merely stewards of. Our bank account, our home, our car, our clothes, our children, everything. It all belongs to him. And we are merely stewards. But let me tell you what happens. If you have something that I want and I take it, I'm not just really attacking you. You're just a steward of it. I'm telling God he doesn't have the right to give it to you. It's supposed to be mine. And I'm actually attacking God's ownership of everything because I don't want him to give it to that person. I want him to give it to me. So when we steal, though it is a relationship with another human being, ultimately it's really about our God. How we treat others shows you what you really feel about God. I don't think God owns everything, so I can take that for myself. We must not in order to honor our God. Next one after that talks about bearing false witness. Here's what I want you to write down. As image bearers, our honesty represents the integrity of God. Our honesty, saying what is true and right about somebody else, represents the integrity of God. Now, I want to I go ahead and uh, point out a fact that we make a mistake with this particular commandment a lot. And we say, we communicate as, thou shalt not lie. But that's not actually what the commandment says. It says, you shall not bear false witness, false testimony. It's referring to a court scene. And it's saying that if, if I say something false about somebody else, ultimately they're going to suffer injustice or get away with something which will be injustice. What you have to remember, in, in the legal system in biblical times, they didn't have DNA testing. They didn't have iPhones to capture what took place, surveillance cameras. Like the only way you knew right and wrong was by the testimony of people. This is why you couldn't put anybody to death without at least two to three witnesses because they had to substantiate what was said. But if people bore false witness, if they were dishonest, then human beings would suffer. But remember what I said earlier, human life represents the dignity of God. And so he wants us to fight for justice, never declare in a courtroom what is false about somebody else, because he knows that when we are dishonest, people look up at God and say, there's no integrity in that man, in that God. But when we treat each other honestly, then what we're ultimately doing is protecting the integrity of God. Now we move on to the last one. And, and before we get to the coveting, though, I want to give you the last truth of why he tells us not to covet. As image bearers, our desires reflect the heart of God. Write that down. As image bearers, our, our desires, what we long for, that's what coveting is, by the way, is to, to long for what doesn't belong to us and to want to make it ours. As image bearers, our desires reflect the very heart of God. This one, I, though, I want you to actually look at again a little more closely. I want you to go back to your Bible. I want you to look at verse 17 again because there's some nuances to this that are pretty interesting. Verse 17, he says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You shall not long to have for yourself what doesn't belong to you. Now, here's what I want you to recognize. This is the only one of the last six commandments that deal with people that doesn't pertain to action but only to desire. All the other ones, to murder, to steal, to commit adultery, like those are all actions that we take. We bear false witness, we dishonor our parents through action, those are all actions. But this one isn't a single action. You can break this commandment without doing a thing. Just your desire is incorrect. It's corrupted to have what doesn't belong to you. But here's what's so interesting about this. 
this commandment is actually the the seedbed that breaks the other five before it. Because notice what he says. He says, do not covet your neighbor's wife. Why? Because you will commit adultery with her. It's this that leads to adultery. He says, don't covet your neighbor's ox or your house or whatever. Why? Because then you will try to steal it. It'll break that commandment. Don't covet your parents' authority because then you will dishonor them. Don't covet another person's influence or status or then you will lie about them in court so that they suffer. Don't do these things in your heart. What he's saying ultimately is that what's in your heart drives all your actions. And here's what's so interesting. I had never seen this until I studied this passage. The 10th commandment actually breaks the first commandment. It says, do not covet. Well, what was the first commandment? You shall have no gods beside me. Well, what happens when you long with a corrupted heart for what doesn't belong to you? It becomes your God. And the moment it becomes your God, you have now broken the first commandment. Everything hinges on the first and the tenth, and all of them deal with your heart. Which is the same reason why Jesus went even deeper in these commandments and went back to the heart. Because Jesus says everything flows out of the heart. He says, it is from the heart that the mouth speaks. He says, it's not just about committing adultery. If you lust after somebody, you've already committed adultery with them in your heart. It's not just about murdering somebody. If you hate somebody, you've already committed adultery with them, or excuse me, you've already killed them, murdered them in your heart. He's saying that ultimately how you feel, what's in your heart determines who you're gonna be. And who you are gonna be in your actions with others determines how you really feel about God. So ultimately, Jesus is saying, Look at your heart, and you're going to see how well you really love God or not. Now, here's what I would love for you to do. I would love for you to take a moment right now and just look at your heart and ask yourself, what do I see inside me? I'd love for you to be brutally honest with what you see in your heart. Because I think some of you are going to rediscover all over again what Jeremiah 17, 9 says. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can even understand it? And look at your heart. What do you see? Do you see lust in your heart? Because it's showing you that you want that more than God. Is there hate in your heart? Do you feel bitterness and resentment toward other people because of what they've done to you? Just look at your language. Remember what I said? Out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. What does your mouth say? Is there gossip? Is there condemning words? Is there sarcasm? Is there bite bite to what you say to others? Because you might say, well, they didn't hear me. It's okay. Well, God knows what's in your heart. And from the overflow of the heart, the mouth is speaking. What is God revealing to you about what's in your heart through what you say? Is it struggling with authority? The weight that people have? You don't want anybody telling you what to do? Is it struggling with having what doesn't belong to you? Maybe it's even frustration with God. God, why do you give all them blessing? God, why do you provide for them and I got so little, God? God is revealing what's inside your heart. And if he does that, then my prayer is that you don't ignore it and that you don't get overwhelmed by it. My prayer is that you see how much you need Jesus because of it. This is the whole point of the law. I've said this so many times. I know you're getting tired of hearing it, but let me say it again. The point of the law is not to give you all the rules you have to obey to make God love you. The point of the law is to show you how broken your heart is and how much you cannot love God until he first loves you. The whole point of these commandments are to show you that you break them so that you will turn to Jesus. And let me tell you who Jesus is. He's the only one who has obeyed every single one of these commandments. 
I, mean, I, just, I just want to go over these six commandments. I want you to see how Jesus is the only one who perfectly obeys them. First one, honor your father and your mother. Respect their authority in your life. Well, what happens? I already mentioned the garden of Gethsemane. God, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to be separated from you, Father. And the Father says, I want you to go. And what does he say? He says, yes, sir. Not my will. Your will be done. He's honoring his Father to the highest degree. Well, the next one says, don't murder. Jesus never even hated a person, ever. He gave himself constantly for the people that nobody even noticed. Next one, do not commit adultery. He was around people all the time, traveling evangelists. Nobody knew what he was doing, and yet he never lusted after a single person. No sexual, sexual immorality in him whatsoever because he was honoring the covenant of his God. Do not steal. He gave freely, expecting nothing in return. He is the king of kings and lord of lords, and he gave it all up and didn't demand anything in return. Never bear false witness. He never lied about anybody. In fact, when they were lying about him, he kept his mouth shut. He refused to say anything that might be a lie in a court of law. He would never bear false witness. You shall not covet anything. Jesus is the only one who walked this planet who didn't long for anything, even though he owned everything. Jesus is the one who fulfilled every single one of these six commandments. And here's the most incredible part about the message of the gospel. He ultimately went to the cross to save the very people who were literally breaking all six of these commandments. I want you, I want you to think about this. this. Again, as I was studying this, it's just it like a ton of bricks that landed on me when I thought about how the religious leaders broke literally all six of these commandments in the last 12 hours of Jesus' life. I want to go backwards. I want to work from the end. The 10th commandment, you shall not covet what belongs. That's long for, be jealous for what somebody else has. Even Pontius Pilate, declared he recognized that they were wanting Jesus murdered because they were jealous of his influence. They, they were jealous, that's why they put him to death, because they were coveting the influence that this man Jesus had. What was the one before that? Don't bear false witness. In the courtroom, they are raising up false witnesses that are trying to say these words. Their, their words don't even agree because they are lying through their teeth at the order of the religious leaders. They are bearing false witness about Jesus to have him crucified. Do not steal. They are literally stealing the clothes off of Jesus' back, casting lots for them so they can have it. Do not commit adultery. The religious leaders who hated Rome are now in bed with Rome to crucify Jesus. They are, they are committing spiritual adultery with Rome because in their law they don't get to put somebody to death. And so they, part, they buddy up with Pontius Pilate so they can put Jesus to death. Committing spiritual adultery with the nation of Rome. The one before that, you shall not murder. They're the ones inciting the crowd. Say it, crucify him, crucify him, kill him, kill him. They want him dead because they want to murder this man. And remember what I told you. This word means to not needlessly take the life of somebody who didn't deserve it. The most innocent man ever to walk the planet, and they needlessly take his life, and they break the law of murder. And the one before it, do not dishonor. Honor your father and your mother. Do not dishonor them. And here they are, the father sent his one and only son and they put him on a cross in public spectacle and spit in his face and crucify him. Nothing more dishonoring than this to the father. And it's of these people that Jesus says, father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's to the vilest of sinners that Jesus says, forgive them, father. 
Don't hold it against them. Put it on my shoulders. Daddy, I know they deserve to be up here. Put it on my shoulders. They don't deserve it. Let them go free. The vilest of sinners. Let me tell you what that means for you and for me. It means there is no sin we can commit that Jesus Christ did not die for other than rejecting his offer of forgiveness. There's no sin. You could be a kleptomaniac, have a spare bedroom filled with things you've stolen from this church, and Jesus would still forgive you and heal your heart. You could struggle with adultery, sleeping around like crazy, destroying your marriage and your family and your life, and Jesus would still forgive you and heal your heart. You could murder somebody in cold blood, and Jesus would still forgive you and heal your heart. If you don't believe me, just look at the thief on the cross. Here's a man who on his last breath, murdered, done evil, had done nothing to repent, all he does is turn to Jesus and say, remember me today when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus tells this murderer, today you'll be with me in paradise. Listen, that doesn't mean that we we won't have to suffer earthly consequences. This, This thief on the cross was suffering his earthly consequences. And you may do something, adultery or murder or theft, and have to suffer consequences for it. I'm not saying you won't ever suffer consequences on earth, but I am saying for all eternity, you can be healed and forgiven. And eternal life can be yours. And I promise you, however hard this life is, you want all eternity with King Jesus. But it does not come, it cannot come until you do what that thief did. And he says, I know who you are, Jesus, the Savior of the world. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. There was a humbling that this thief had to do. Say, I know, I'm getting, he says from the cross, I'm getting what I deserve. We're getting what we deserve up here on this cross. But that man does not deserve to be here. And he turns to Jesus and humbles himself and says, remember me. And Jesus says, you have eternal life. I believe there are some of you who are here this morning. And as you've examined your heart, what you've seen is that it is broken, that it is sick and it is vile. There is so much sin in your life. The good news of the gospel is that if you would just humble yourself and admit it, I'm broken. I don't like what I see. It is so screwed up. And you would say, Jesus, forgive me. I deserve this. I'm not going to blame everybody else for my problems. It's me. That's when your heart can be changed. Listen, this is so easy to blame the people around you. You have hate in your heart. Yeah, but you don't know what they did to me, Jason. You're committing sexual immorality. Yeah, but you don't see how, how absent my spouse is. They're not meeting my needs, so I've got to go around. We're, we're taking what doesn't belong to us. You don't understand how fair this is, Jason. Everybody else has. I have so little. I'm just trying to survive. We blame, 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 blame. And we'll never find healing until we say it's not their fault. It's my fault. It's not their heart, it's my heart. Oh, God, forgive me. Listen, if you need forgiveness, it can be yours today. All you have to do is die to yourself and raise up in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you how you do that. We're going to have a chance to respond in just a moment. And there are going to be people down front. And you may need to come going, I'm ready. I'm, I'm tired of feeling so wretched in my heart for being so broken. I want what you're talking about. I want salvation. I want my heart changed. You come let us know. We pray for you. We help you, we make sure you understand the gospel. And then if you're ready today, we put a t-shirt on you that says, Jesus in my place. He was righteous in my place. And you get to come into this baptistry and bow down and say, the old me is dead, a brand new me is coming up. And I believe there could be some of you here today who are bold enough to say, it's me. You feel the spotlight, you're sweating like crazy. You're wondering, is it hot in here? No, it's the spirit of God. 
coming upon you. And you have a choice to make. Am I going to resist him? Or am I going to respond to him? Well, maybe you're a believer and you've already made that decision, but you recognize sin inside of you. Let me tell you what you get to do. You get to say, Jesus, I'm sorry, all over again. We need to repent daily because we sin daily. We get glimpses of our heart all the time. And we should go, God, I'm sorry. Thank you for Jesus. I repent again and I come back to you. Respond as you need to. Let me say this as well. Every single Sunday, there are people who come in here with incredible hurt, with burdens and pain. We have a prayer team down front every single week for one reason. To be a minister to you, to pray for you, to take your need to the Father. So if you're here this morning and what I'm talking about has nothing to do with how you're feeling, but you need prayer, we have prayer people who are ready to cry out to God for you. And you have a God who loves you enough to send his own son for you. But don't hold that prayer need back. You bring it. I want to invite you all to stand up right now. I want to invite the prayer team members to come around the front. And I'm asking you, if you need prayer, you can come let us know. We want to pray for you. If today you're going, I'm ready to have a new heart. I'm ready to have a new life. I'm ready to discover salvation in Jesus Christ. I want what that thief on the cross had, eternal life. You come let us know. If you just need to repent, even if you just need to get down on the steps and bow down and say, I'm sorry, I see what's in my heart, do it. You respond as you need to right now.